I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm okay with like fully selling out. It's, it's, it's all right. Yeah, no, it's the same here. That's, that's, I mean, that's why we got this job, right? Welcome to Damn Venture, the podcast where we're stopping the flow of BS in the venture capital industry. My name is Andrew Chan, and for the inaugural episode of Damn Venture, I had the chance to sit down with George Eastley from Outsiders Fund to talk about investing in unsexy industries and the crypto bubble. An important note with that in mind is that this podcast was actually recorded on October 5th, about a month before the FTX collapse. Prior to being at Outsiders Fund, George had spent several years as a banker and late-stage investor, although in a past life, he grew up on a farm in New Jersey where he loved tipping cows and farming carrots. George is a good friend, someone who's unafraid to speak the truth, and I hope you all enjoy. George, it's great to have you on. Happy to be here. So, George, you and I have known each other for a bit over a year now. We, we kind of instantly hit it off. And, and when I decided to launch the podcast, I knew you were one of the first people I want to have on. Only issue is you live in New York, right? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm based in Manhattan full time. Yeah, so, so tell me a bit, like, what made you decide to come to San Francisco to record a podcast? Well, you know, I think coming out to San Francisco to record a podcast as part of the, the broader suite of things that I was going to be doing out here. So some founder meetings, some LP stuff going on, but uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to miss the opportunity to uh, cloud chase a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's something we've, we've obviously talked about a lot and I mean, we might get into that a little bit more later in the show, but maybe it's helpful for the, the many listeners that I'm sure we're absolutely not going to have. Maybe you give the quick background on yourself and on Outsiders Fund. Yeah. So I've been at Outsiders Fund now for about a year and a half going on two years. Quick background there is that, you know, we were founded by two guys, Austin McCord and Teddy Seam. They've had interesting stories. Teddy was a quant engineer at Bridgewater Associates, then led machine learning at a startup, then pivoted into early stage at General Catalyst, which is where he met Austin a few years ago. And Austin has a pretty unique founder story. So for some of our listeners here, maybe they've heard of Austin. So he went to college in the mid-2000s at RIT, didn't do so hot when it came to the school thing. He was more of like a tinkerer than he was a student. When he graduated with less than stellar grades and no traditional job prospects, he decided to start a business doing data backup recovery and continuity out of his parents' basement. Bootstrapped that for six years to about $25 million in revenue, raised institutional capital from General Catalyst, then TCV, eventually sold Datto in the billions, also helped take it public, and then it was recently taken private at a $6.2 billion valuation or so. In that the course of that trajectory, he spent some time at General Catalyst as a venture partner there. And, and so Outsiders Fund spun out kind of under this conviction that a lot of firms are focusing on things that are increasingly shiny, but not necessarily increasingly useful for the broader economy. It's like my personal favorite example of this yeah, would be what would be like, you know, six different platforms can help me facilitate a purchase of digital assets in the metaverse, but a farmer in Iowa can't do payroll. Right. And those are the things that we try to solve or that we try to find companies who are solving those things, right? So it's like, let's solve the problems of today before turning to the problems of tomorrow, particularly when we don't know what those markets look like or if those things that you're solving are even going to be problems down the line. That's kind of the ethos for like the whole fund. And, you know, we we invest seed through series A with like check sizes ranging from like half a million dollars to 7 million and, and, and up at series A. Perfect. And, and I mean, in terms of your, your personal background, how did you end up at Outsiders Fund? I, I mean, I know that in the intro, I obviously said you were a carrot farmer but uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if that's perhaps the most 
true representation of, of your personal background. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, I grew up in Jersey. I mean, like, I guess on a, a farm technically, but you know, I went to like, I you know, grew up in Jersey, went to school there, high school, all that stuff. Went to school up North at Dartmouth about five years ago now. And uh, spent a couple of years in the Bay working in family offices, most recently at Iconic in their kind of their family office practice there and was largely like a self-taught angel investor to start and then got a lot of reps in doing that and then eventually just started pounding the pavement for venture jobs and ultimately landed at Outsiders Fund as their first employee. So, you know, just a lot of persistence and knocking on doors, I suppose, but... That's yeah. the, the short version of the story. No, I mean, I, I love the angel investor to venture capital associate pathway. I, I think I did something pretty similar myself. Maybe maybe for the help of, of people listening, I, how did you get involved with angel investing and talk a little bit more about sure. I mean, what your investments were and, and how you convince people to take your small checks on a cap table? Yeah, definitely. So I think that that's true. I, 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 before I say anything, I think I will say like, like a lot of the financial services, venture is like opaque to a lot of people for the sake of being opaque. Like I think people just closely guard a lot of the information just to closely guard it. Like I don't see that what you learn over time in venture is that there isn't like any sort of secret sauce to it or even any sort of like in a lot of cases, even like intellectual rigor about any of it. But the information is is disparate and, and closely held, which makes it hard for, for people to access in, in general, even people within the financial services to begin with. But you know, I was lucky enough to be in a place that was like iconic where you have this really, really dynamic base of family office clients in, addi- in addition to one of the, the kind of best performing growth funds out there. So everything you see and all of the newsworthy stuff, right, that's happening there is all deal based, all based on these kind of very, very interesting startups in the ecosystem that are kind of disrupt- disrupting this, that or the other space. And like my initial thinking was like, wow, that's like really cool. And it's a part of finance that doesn't necessarily make money off of other money in the same way that, you know, other verticals within the financial services might. It is like, I guess that's the closest you can get to actually being like a value creator in the financial services. So I just wanted to do that. And the way I did that was kind of getting a feel for what was successful coming through Iconic and like reading investment memos and understanding like what the kind of high IQ people in their client base were doing on a daily basis and looking for those things myself, whether it was elbowing my way into demo days or sending cold emails. That's how I, it, there's no secret to it. It was just brute force. Yeah. And just hustle in a lot of ways. Exactly. And like, also like, I think people discount like how, how much like, you know, being personable and like being like a good person and like being like, just like willing to like yeah. be there for people is, oh, is, is can actually like get you on a cap table when you're like a, an angel cutting like, you know, five t- or four to five figure checks that like are not like meaningful to anybody. No, I, I mean, that, that's absolutely true. I, my first check personally, I wrote a $500 check into a founders fund led YC backed company. And, and to be honest with you, there's absolutely no reason I belonged on that cap table other than the fact that I was personable and the, decent enough guy all things considered so i i mean obviously we we brought you on here for hot takes and and one thing that you and i have discussed a lot is we're both investors in 
real industries. We're looking at people solving problems that change the lives of real people. And I think that's a lot of how we think about our thesis. What are some technologies right now that you think would fall outside of that category that, that venture <laughs> investors and, and, and for those listening, I, I, this is obviously a leading question. I know what George is going to say here, but what, what technologies do you think people are investing in that are not going to affect the lives of real people? Sure. Yeah. And I guess to take a quick step back, like I, I think, you and I have very aligned in investing kind of philosophies, particularly just by virtue of like what our firms focus on, right? So, you know, traditional incumbent spaces, high degree of like insider domination, <laughs> fragmentation, opacity, places where, you know, tech adoption doesn't necessarily make sense relative to like the the broader state of technology in, in our world. And so if you look at our portfolio, it's, and yours too, frankly, it's like, you know, ag tech, industrials, things that are like a little out there, kind of dusty, boring, maybe to, to other people, but we find them very, yeah, very I mean, exciting. I, I wouldn't say dusty and boring. I, I think there's a lot of fun innovation happening right now in agriculture. It's just, I, I agree. I think a lot of what we're focusing on are, are places where other venture capitalists are either afraid to or too bored to play in. But but I mean, I think from, from the VC perspective... Yeah dusty boring not necessarily not to the people yeah. building into them or not and not to to certain players within the, the venture market but um you know things that don't garner as much attention as they should and yeah, absolutely that that being said like then you, then you move on to like what is garnering a lot of attention you know some things that come to mind would be like the whole kind of virtual meeting technology craze and then as just like an example that would be kind of second to my next two examples of, you know, the, the general craze for investing in Web3 when, you know, nobody can provide you a consistent definition across two different people of what Web3 is or or kind of blockchain technology and crypto in, in general. Like we are actually fully allergic to, to those things at, at Outsiders Fund and under the, the thinking that like we don't know what those markets will look like. So like why, like we don't, think that we're best positioned to like actually solve problems in those spaces and we're a little dubious on like the value add of those spaces in general i think yeah so so i think that's that's really interesting i mean so i spent the last week at, at token 24 and I, actually sorry i should i should rephrase this did you go to I, token i i went to singapore to be in singapore mostly because there, there might or might not have been a Formula One race occurring, and, and there also <laughs> yes. might or might not have been a lot of networking events occurring at the same time as the Formula One race. And so I made a conscious decision. I, I actually took vacation time and went to Singapore for the last week. But I, I ended up at a lot of these Token 2049 events. And, and what was really interesting for me to see is that even in what you objectively see as a, a bear market for crypto, everybody at every event I was at was still more bullish than you could believe. I met people launching new NFT projects. That was just insane to me that with, I mean, you can look, at, there's a chart from OpenSea on NFT trade volumes. It's down 97% from the peak. I think, I, I mean, I guess I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. What do you think is driving a lot of this continued bullishness on Web3? <sighs> That's really hard to say because I think I, I, I across like the, the kind of fundamentals focused investor base, I think a lot of people are pretty cold on on Web3 and and sure. So, so let me rephrase general. maybe what makes you so cold on Web3? That's a, yeah. So I think that's, that's a question that's somewhat easier to answer. Right. It's like, 
okay, Web3, for the most part, generally a collection of buzzwords in my mind. And even when there is like a distinct technical application, like if you think about the underlying process that they're building into, like I think a filtering mechanism that we use is like, why does this necessarily have to be done in a quote unquote Web3 way or using the blockchain? And particularly when in cases like, you know, blockchain is not the fastest way to do this at, the, at this time. Yeah, I mean, what's what's an example of that you've seen on the market so far? I mean, like, let's use blockchain technology or DAOs or whatever to, like, replace the LLC or, like, things like that. Just kind of proving ownership when, like, the necessary compute and work involved in proving that ownership is actually pretty high. So an, an interesting example would be, like, render token, for, for one. Like, sure, like, you do this on the blockchain and it helps you, like, render images or projects and full disclosure it's actually something that i was like almost duped into buying by kind of like a crypto evangelist friend so i you know i lost a little bit of money on that as we all are yeah (laughs) no yeah i i I dabbled and got burned but it's just like rendering images and proving that they're your images and that you commissioned the project to be done like it doesn't need to be done on blockchain like you can just have a pretty straightforward contract that can be executed in roughly the same time so like what is the value add i think there's there's something more important here too that, that we might be overlooking which is that a lot of success in venture capital is both built and broken on valuations <laughs> and, and you and i've talked about this a lot I, i'd be curious to hear uh what are you seeing in terms of valuations, both in the companies you're investing in, in Web3, no matter how well, you define it, companies? Sure. I mean, yeah. it's like really interesting because we play in these kind of overlooked niche kind of areas, you know, for example, like autonomous airport ground support equipment that just takes like your bag from the baggage hall to the airport or the aircraft staging area, like niche kind of applications of technology like that. And these these are real businesses with real technology, tangible technology, and in a lot of cases, like non-trivial revenue. But because they are, you know, out of favor or generally overlooked, you see like actually very reasonable revenue multiples when it comes to valuation. Like maybe you're doing like a 20x, but like that's probably at the higher end of stuff that we've seen in, in the verticals that we invest in. Like, you know, if you get crazy, maybe like a 25 or 30, it's nothing like what we've seen in the more in favor sectors or even the sectors where you're hype cycle driven. Right, which I would say is kind of Web three and crypto at, at this time, like where you have your infinite revenue multiple, which is which is kind of all over the place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so maybe for for those who aren't necessarily in the venture industry, what do you sure. mean by an infinite revenue multiple? Right. So there's like this problem about when it comes to dividing by zero. Like, so if so, like you know, usually 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 when when you, you you value a company, it's based on like okay, what value are they creating? What are people paying them? Right. Like the the value of the business is based in the cash flow or the cash it can generate, right? Because if you buy stock in a business, what you have is effectively a claim on its future cash flow, which is like the fund, the intrinsic value of that business. When you have a business with no revenue, it's not making any money. It doesn't even have a product yet. Being valued, you know, two or three times higher than a business that has, let's say like a million dollars of revenue, but just like plays in a space that is perceived as being, you know, boring. Like, I don't know that that seems like an inefficiency in the market. It just seems like it just doesn't make any sense. And that's kind of the conviction that we invest behind as a firm and we've seen great results doing it. And, and you know just focusing on like real value creation. And I I don't know what you've been seeing, but that that's kind of how we feel about it. 
Yeah, I mean, I'd say we look similarly, and and I think the the trend that we're both highlighting is that not enough people, both both in our generation of investors and broadly in the ecosystem, rely on something called principles driven investing, <laughs> and, and it's 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 really funny that we've gotten so far away from this. I I mean, look, I've not been in venture that long. You've not been in venture that long, but. I think both of our funds uniquely bias us to the point where we're looking fundamentally at revenue. We're not just looking at team idea and a dream to value something at 20, 30, 40 million post money valuation at a pre-seed round. And I think that hopefully we're going to see a reckoning for that at some point in the next economic cycle. I I don't I mean, we're kind know of seeing if- a reckoning. Yeah, you know, I, with the later stages. I mean, what, what are you seeing right now? I, I haven't seen a reckoning quite yet. <laughs> well, I mean, you're, you're just not seeing stuff get marked yet, but you're seeing like, you know, firing, heads rolling and people deploying slower and, you know, just like a general unease, like deal, deal, deals are just totally frozen in Series B+. Plus. I got that feeling. Yeah, I that's been an interesting one for us. I, I don't know if deals have been frozen. They, they've definitely been moving slower. I, deals broadly have been moving slower. And, and there's this great like overlying thesis and by the time this gets published, because we're doing this seasonally, who knows if this will still be true. <laughs> but the, the amount of dry powder that's available right now for venture capital will, will cause a reinvigoration of the innovation ecosystem, a doubling down on a lot of these companies. And I don't, I don't know if that's categorically true. Like, I think everyone's going to start, instead of what they've been doing historically of just dumping money and hoping for the best, I think we're going to start seeing it drag out as people realize that the returns aren't going to line up. But but at the same time, I also saw a pre-seed, pre-product company asking for a thirty million dollar valuation last week, and they they got it. So I, what, I've seen uh, both. What space was that in? This one was in climate and and carbon capture. Would you go so far as to say that to some extent you climate tech? And I know this might be an unpopular opinion, but would you say that climate tech is itself the next hype cycle investment? Well, so. And, and I mean, let me turn this back on you because you're, you're the guest today on the podcast. And, <laughs> and I think that realistically, if we're talking about hype cycle investing, there's no area more fraught with a boom and bust cycle than crypto right now. Mm-hmm. And do I think climate has issues, right? People investing in things that are not principles driven, technologies that they don't understand or that don't work. Yes, but but I think that's reflective of a broader trend perhaps as well. And I mean, maybe, maybe you've, you've got some space to comment here, but what, what would you say underlies a lot of the overvaluation of companies? What, what is behind the hype? I guess. I guess it would vary from, let's say, let's say crypto for the example, what's, what's behind the hype in crypto? What do you think? Why is everybody so excited? So willing to dump money into this space? that's very interesting i mean like so we don't so to be totally frank like we don't do a lot of thinking about crypto in general just given like the kind of full allergy when it comes to our investing kind of mandate you know it's it's new and like people want to kind of buy into something with like theoretically like sea changing capability like i don't know if crypto and blockchain are the things to do it i mean if you think about like what has actually unlocked a lot of the software kind of value creation potential. It's actually been like step stepwise changes in hardware over time. 
So like, you know, the advent of the personal computer and then the internet or like, you know, hardware based evolutions kind of around the iPhone that creates like the ability for app layers and just kind of that sort of like formative style hardware innovation that then creates the software layer opportunity. But I, I honestly like, I think I don't get it, which is why maybe I'm not the best person to comment on this. It's like, it doesn't well, make any, I don't okay. think it's, I don't think it's so rooted I, I in think fundamentals. You're, you're, you're hitting on a, another interesting trend here, which is that you guys at Outsiders One, you're not afraid of hardware. I used to work at a firm called Riot Ventures. We're not, a, we were not afraid of hardware there. Even at Builders, we prefer to be software focused because a lot of our industries, to be completely frank with you, are not ready for hardware yet. Yeah. But what what drives your, your lack of fear of hardware? That's a space that, you know, you'll talk to 100 VCs, 95 of them will say that point blank, if you have hardware, they won't invest in your product. What what makes yeah, you guys like, there? you know, I, I mean, there's plenty of great, it, it, it is a little bit odd, right? Because there, there are a lot of fantastic and landscape changing companies that have focused on hardware over the years. And I think where it stems from internally in terms of not being afraid of hardware is, you know, from the top down, right? So, you know, you have, you've, Austin and, and Teddy at the top of, of Outsiders Fund and, and Austin built a business that was, you know, reliant and also also adjacent to hardware. And like you can create a lot of value there if you know kind of how to handle your supply chain, all of like the logistical pieces and under, and deeply understand the industry that you're building into. And, you know, we've seen that play out across a number of our investments where it's like, okay, Rockstar founder you identify a pain point in an industry that is a fundamentally hardware driven industry. Like there is the, there is the capacity for technological improvement in every industry. And like, why not hardware? Like it doesn't make any sense. Like, like people are scared of like the complexities of supply chain, but like it's possible to just manage your supply chain. Yeah, no, I I completely agree here. And and so I'm going to bring this full circle. When we talk about, I, I think, I think the broader point we're hitting on, and what we're getting to is is that venture capital is inherently a follow-first industry, right? It's easier to raise capital, it's easier to deploy money, and it's easier to, to honestly make returns sometimes if you are a follower. But there's a difference between making returns and making good returns. Right. And I, I think your issue with crypto, and we're not going to dive into quantum tech this particular episode, but a lot, a lot of <laughs> a, a lot of what I, what I have issues with in quantum sometimes is, is it's people willing to make a quick buck instead of investing in what might be stepwise changes that will actually make a difference and really change. I also world. think that that has something to do with like how much people over-index on pattern matching, right? Because like pattern matching is a double-edged sword. It makes yeah, you really good absolutely. at identifying incremental change, but not good at fundamental and stepwise and and kind of fully reevaluative change yeah and and see that's the interesting thing about venture capital is a lot of times when you're interviewing for associate jobs analyst jobs you're judged on your pattern matching they want you to skills. pattern match they want you to pattern match like i mean they'll, they'll have you submit memos they want it to look <laughs> just like a memo that they would have written and and i think at least the issue with that that sort of recruiting process is you're right. Pattern matching doesn't really work because your entire job as a venture capitalist is to find alpha. Well, if you pattern match, I, yeah, I was, was going to say like, it works that's, to find beta. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Like I, I got in this industry in a very different way than you, but I came from science. I, 
look, I would not have dropped a career in science if I had any desire to find beta. Finding beta is boring. Like the entire reason, I, I think a lot of us early career people are inventors. We're gamblers. Like, <laughs> not not in the sense that I'm gonna drop a hundred dollars on Fanduel next weekend and ride on no, Christian McCaffrey it's, it's not, not getting injured, exactly. but like. We, we like making calculated bets and seeing them pay off. And I, I don't think you find that by following others. I don't think you find that in a hype wave. And that's why valuations get pumped. And if you're not underwriting principles, you're going to get burned. Yeah, for sure. And I think that like once you have, well, I mean, if you look at all the followers who, you know, started like kind of like the follow on model, like let's say you're indexing on, you know, a certain sector of the market or a certain accelerator, you know, some people do index YC, right? And sure, that's great. Those companies get into the later stages. And then these later stages are also then dominated by these kind of indexing funds, which I actually think could work, right? Indexing the later stages of venture yep. could work, but it can't work with more than one player <laughs> because you can't have more than one indexer and then you have and then you have them competing right so that then it fundamentally dislocates the value of the index but if you have one person let's just say yeah, that hi- hype waves right right hype waves we're, we're exactly. running i i think that if if we're going to uh, i mean maybe this will end up being our theme later our theme's hype waves we believe that that hype waves are causing problems for people trying to make real difference in venture capital and people trying to make returns well exactly yeah, yeah. when you have you know it's just like the the unlimited dollars and limited diligence problem that that kind of pervades particularly the later stages of venture and like builds in this boom and bust cycle i mean we've seen it multiple times yeah i love how you say that because I, I think both of us are too young to have actually seen a boom and bust cycle multiple i'm times. significantly older than you yeah we, we, we've been over this before. <laughs> Don't worry. mr mr i'm in my late 20s what 27 so, is objectively late 20s yeah okay it yes but also, <laughs> but also, yeah, I don't know. But also, okay, this is I don't know a lot of. There's a lot of things I don't know. For reference, this, this was the man today can, complaining that he had taken a large sneeze and had blown out his back. That's how you so, know you're 27. Uh, <laughs> you sneeze and then you start pulling muscles, and you're just like Jesus. Like I'm sure this is like how my dad feels all the time. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm lucky to say I have not quite reached that yet. But uh, so, so as we think about hype waves and what underlies the follower mentality. I mean, a lot of times what I think about is the personalities that we recruit in a venture and the, the type of people who gravitate towards hype waves. I, I'd be curious what you've seen in, in your spaces. Who do you think is following hype waves? What do you think is going to be the next big hype wave? Oh, man. I mean, I feel like I've already kind of hinted at it. Yeah, maybe maybe we don't do direct call-outs here. But, but as we talk about what what is the next big hype wave i think you and i are already seeing this yeah i mean i think you look i think that there, there's room for in, there's room for intellectually sound investing like everywhere right i think there is there's the ability to develop a thesis and do independent thinking and come up with your own opinion and you know either follow or go against the crowd like fine whatever whatever you do like you know have at it like whatever where you run into problems is where you get indiscriminate following and i think that you see a great de- degree of that in you know crypto today, Block- like blockchain, Web three, just kind of like the flavor of the day sort of industries. I think the next one is, like I've said before, <laughs> probably climate tech, where things that 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 occupy certain verticals within that will see a lot of indiscriminate follow on investing, just and like stuff that where it's like, oh, I think this person is like probably smart, like I'll follow them. Yeah. So I mean, do you see any of that in the industries that you and I invest in as well? That is a good 
question. I think in maybe in industrials a little bit. I mean, if you just if you use like crowding in an industry as, as a proxy for that, like of how many people who are actually getting funded when when kind of like the things that they're doing are just like a slightly different flavor of one another. So like I don't know, I can think of like six different computer vision solutions off the top of my head for industrial process management, and it's like it just makes it really hard to pick a winner. And like you're, I don't know if it's so much, and they got like pretty crazy valuations and it's hard to tell exactly what distinguishes one from another. Yeah. I mean, I can say my own experience. There are two sectors for me that I, I see on a daily basis that are experiencing the same thing right now. And it's actually because of the recession that's causing a hype wave mm-hmm. or the pending recession that might or might not happen depending on what happens to Credit Suisse next week. We'll see. Uh, <laughs> Brutal. That's, that's dating this podcast. But number one for those is agriculture. And I think a lot of people saw what happened in Ukraine and the supply chain issues in Ukraine and started saying, I want to invest in agriculture because this is a critically important thing. It's going to survive recession. It's going to survive global war. Everybody needs agriculture security. The problem being, no matter how much money you put into agriculture, you're not going to make farmers adopt a product that's developed in Silicon Valley. Very interesting because I I, I focus on ag like a lot of my time on on ag and it is you know i and i wanted to do it up front and i think i almost maybe unintentionally drew the short straw in the sense that like i picked probably like the hardest place to actually like sell into in just kind of like the broader legacy economy but people who think that you can invest in ag based on silicon valley principles are just like so far off the mark it's crazy yeah no it's it's absolutely a hype wave and i i mean we've seen it play out they the largest exits, I mean, okay, you can argue Solugen is an, an ag company, but outside of that, the largest exit that you can truly say is an ag robot or ag startup is Bear Flag Robotics. $250 million. Exactly. If I were underwriting that as Series A, I cannot underwrite that, $250 million. It happens over and over and over again. Like a lot of the, and, and then this brings back, brings you back to the question of like, what is my entry valuation into all these companies and like what, un- what multiple am I underwriting to as well? But like the pattern within the industry is that particularly anything like hardware touching that gets traction is like, okay, you have initial traction. You probably sell into like a specialty agriculture vertical where the margins are better and can support some sort of, you know, experimentation on new technology that also is somewhat outside of an OEM dealer network. Probably. Yeah. And then eventually an OEM buys you for between, you know, at best like $250 million, like, you know, ideal case 500. We haven't seen that yet, but that's kind of like the pattern that there's no exit replays itself. And and so we see the same thing a lot of times actually in the mining sector too. And, and let me preface this by saying we have two amazing investments in the mining space at builders VC self plug here, safe AI, stratum AI. I love you guys doing extremely well. But historically speaking, mining, and I will show you not, like I have a degree in geophysics, it is the single worst industry you will ever try to sell into. And what happened when Russia invaded Ukraine? Everyone said, oh, there's going to be a critical mineral shortage. Let's invest in mining. And I had 10 emails from my friends who I told them previously I was focused on the mining space, super excited about it, who had absolutely nothing to do with mining, different corporate venture arms, different institutionals. Yeah. And all of them wanted to know what the scoop was on mining. And it's it's the second anybody sees any opportunity, that's when you get the hype wave. And then the hype wave stays as long as it's able to back it up on the valuations. And I mean, I think that's what you see with crypto. Right. I mean, there's like, 
Yeah, and like kind of everybody is like aware of like what like the Gartner like disruptive technology cycle looks like, right? So it's like, you know, like that that kind of like tenure trajectory that like nascent technology takes, right? Where it's like, you know, first couple of years of some winners, people don't really like know what's going on, but like people invest behind that and they're like, Oh, like this is the next thing, like the internet that people like don't really understand in the first two years and then like ten years down the road, it's like the fun like the fundamental change in our economy. Yeah, I mean I was just about to say that. I, I, I think the devil's advocate take here is that we're both boomers, right? I mean, maybe, but like, I don't know. I feel like I should be getting better answers to like, why does this need to be done on my Yeah, No, no, <laughs> I, 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 maybe, we, maybe we dive into that a little bit more. Like, I, I think a lot of what we might be seeing with crypto, what we might be seeing with climate tech, what we see with a lot of the hype industries is, is what you see with the dot-com bubble. It's you see initial traction, you see a wild proliferation. And a lot of people don't know this, but when the automobile was invented, there were hundred plus automobile companies and today how many can you name like maybe 10 obviously between 10 and 20 yeah. 10 20 great there's there's a decent number of automobile companies but from that initial era of automobile companies only one won out and that was ford right and you can't necessarily make venture capital returns on not everybody's going to invest in the one out of 100 chance that's ford i mean and then you can do that pa- to, to pattern match across time. Yeah. Right? You can do that with railroads too. I mean, yeah, I actually, I'm not familiar with that example. With like, t- t- you tell do, me you about can, the railroad you can, example. You can do that with like joint stock companies as well. So, I mean like, you know, as tale as old as time, right? When it comes to like the history of the financialization of the economy, you have, I don't know, I guess the best example would probably be like, you know, joint stock companies maybe in the 1600s 1700s you have some breakout successes by, by the way guys this is the history major and george speaking right now yeah, also I, like i'm like yeah don't don't quote me like too strictly on this but like you know the advent of joint stock companies like sure there are a couple breakout successes just like, you know, british east india company dutch and like, and like the dutch had a few of their own as well but like what these initial successes set off and we see this over and over again in like the boom and bust cycles throughout like the last you know 600 years to five 600 years is that you have a couple of breakout successes everybody piles in ideas get increasingly fraudulent and tenuous but because of the hype cycle investing everybody still participates in those trends and people end up losing their shirts like you know the original stock market suicides are in 17th century england and like it happens over and over like in that kind of the recorded history of England's financial markets at that period. So you can just look back and see this model play itself out over and over because it's just like the nature of the nature of, you know, innovation, whether that's financial or technological. But yeah, <coughs> to quote, but, uh, whoa, I, I don't. Wow. Did you do you hear that? That's, uh, oh. I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. I, I, OK, so. I, that begs the question: Where is Do Quan, and what really happened to Luna? That's a really good question. I'm not. I'm the least qualified person in the United States to answer yeah, that. Probably. I, I, I was talking about this as Token 2049 last week. I, I oh, think, do you get any hot takes? Yeah. I no. I I was saying. So <laughs> where everybody was like, I have no idea where Do Quan is, and <laughs> and I said, look, there's only one answer to where Do Quan is. It's South America. Are you sure it's not the metaverse? You know. I see a lot of companies in the metaverse every week. Last week, I got a LinkedIn cold email about a metaverse rave company. Hell and, yeah, you did. And, and, <laughs> and I, look, you know, that might appeal to a certain audience. And, and I guess like what my thesis has always been, there are hype waves. And there are hype waves that ap- apply to certain groups. Like 
I thought TikTok was going to be a hype wave. Obviously, it's not. I spend a lot of time on TikTok. I will, I will own that. China owns my data. It's fine. I don't have TikTok, and I think so. There's only one boomer in the room. At yeah, the it's, it's 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 okay. But you know, I to be honest, like I thought TikTok was going to be a hype wave. It wasn't. Maybe we're both wrong here. And, and I think that's that's the important thing to recognize. Is the job of a venture capitalist, more often than not, is to be wrong. Like you're going to be wrong 95% of the time. It, it's better to be wrong and, and not make a bet than to be wrong on something that you make a bet on. And, and, and that's what people don't always realize that the, the value proposition of a VC is. And so a lot of times we're not passing because we don't believe in you at all. It's because we believe in you a little bit, but we're too afraid to be wrong about something we put money into. Yeah, it's just a question it's of risk. being comfortable with certain risks and like, you know, you filter through them and you're like, what am I comfortable with? What am I not? And like, you know, it's, it's more of an more of an art than a science, particularly at the early stages when you don't when you can't run a company out of a spreadsheet. Right. Yeah. So. So, I mean, I think this this begs a more interesting question. A nice segue as we, we start to, to wind up or maybe 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 not wind up the podcast. I have we, no idea what time it is. We got we got 40 minutes on the clock and we're, yeah, we have. Jeebus. We're just going to keep going. It's, but, so I think one thing that was always interesting to me, you went from being a history major to an early stage investor. Look, there, there's a set pathway for venture capital that I think a lot of people feel like they have to follow. And that's doing a business undergraduate degree, working for two years in investment banking or consulting, and then becoming an analyst associate before getting an MBA and then getting on a partner track position how do you feel like your degree set you up for the position you're in now? And I mean, how do you see your future playing out in venture? Yeah, that's really interesting. Cause like I did like, you know, I was always a social sciences kind of, you know, words guy, right. Studied history with, you know, a side of geography, which is kind of somewhat of a misnomer. It's more like international development and kind of human geography sort of stuff. But I think particularly, so I don't think what I did would set me up well for late stage venture where the skill set is almost fundamentally the same as banking or PE in the sense that you just need to be able to spreadsheet jockey. Like what is my growth rate? What yeah, is my magic fun is number? That, right? like, it's not fun, right? It's, it's not, fun. not, it's not yeah. fun. You need to be able to do is think critically and understand how to manage relationships. I think to do the early stage game anyway, I think that like those are like the, the big things and being able to wrap your head around amorphous and sometimes like somewhat contradictory ideas is the best skill set for early stage VC when you don't have anything to underwrite effectively in terms like numerically, but it's like, okay, like this could be interesting. Why could it be interesting? Let me take a step back and understand the broader macro. And like, let me understand like the pain that, that these potential customers might feel. And I don't know. I think anybody can do that with, you know, just like the right sort of mentorship. Like it's, there's no secret to it. It's like, can you identify a need? Yeah. See that that's a hot take right there. I mean, you're saying that there's no secret to breaking into venture capital. Uh, so, so what advice would you give to history majors in college right now <laughs> who are looking at their job prospects and they say, well, it's a bad season to be working at a museum. I don't know what I want to be doing. I don't want to get a PhD. Yeah, what, museum what was not on my radar. I don't know. This is like things that they don't teach you in college where it's like, like you learn a lot of, of you know hard facts and critical thinking skills. You don't learn the softer skills and like what it, it means to be where you are in your 
personal and professional trajectory. One thing that I realized probably too late was that like, you know, I'm not made of glass and like you have time to experiment. If there's any time to experiment, it's like now, like chase something like you're not really cooked until you're like 35, but nobody tells you that when you're an undergrad, when everybody wants to like sell their soul for a consulting or IB job. So there's that piece. And there's also the piece where, I don't know, I think you have to understand people under index on how important it is to be an observer of people and to understand how to manage a relationship and literally just like ask for stuff. And the worst thing that can happen is people say no. Yeah. What, what's, what's an example of something you've asked for? My job at outsiders fund. All right. Tell, tell, <laughs> like, like, well, let's, let's like, tell a story. Like, I mean, oh, I think this is important. Well, no, I mean, I think, no, it, it, you know, asking is like, you know, kind of like a, a, a little bit of an imprecise way to put it, but it's like, okay, I see the industry that, that is super interesting to me. I don't have a formal education in that discipline, which is early stage venture. I'm going to put myself in a position to, you know, best be able to achieve that goal, which is what, like, okay, what is the learning that I can do on my own? What books exist? What online resources exist? Let me learn. Let me then learn by doing, which is probably the best way to do it because you're actually evaluating things. Like in even in your case, like cutting $500 checks into companies. No, I was, so I was going to say, I, I actually do have an example. I, my, my first summer in venture, I got thrown off the deep end. They, they told me, go meet experts in whatever field you're researching. And, and so I, being the absolute dumbass that I was, I went on LinkedIn I found the CEOs of every oil and gas, every mining company I could. I, I reached out to all of them. I, you know, actually got a couple calls out of that. Mm-hmm. I, I was talking with the head of innovation at BHP. I was talking with venture capital, like partner level people at VC firms. Everyone. It's because you just have to ask and you have to have a reason for asking, honestly. Yeah. And, and yeah. People also, I think it's like a lot of those folks, if you, like have somewhat non-traditional backgrounds or interesting stories that generally start with just kind of like, you know, asking a question or like asking somebody for their time and like learning through like an informal kind of method. And like that people discount that a little bit. And I think that like if more people just kind of asked for things like uh, we'd be, we'd be, there would be a lot more kind of interesting professional trajectories out there. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it's about being authentic, being yourself and, and having a story and that bringing this all full circle is why you don't invest in hype waves is because right. you have to have your own view on an industry. You can't follow someone else's. And, and I mean, I'll, I'll tell a little story here. One time I was on a networking call as, as one does in venture capital, you're on a networking call with a different venture capital firm. And, and we were talking and, and I, I asked this, this girl, I was like, so what sort of stuff do you invest in? And she's like, Oh, we, we invest in a lot of software. I was like, Oh, okay. So you're doing like, you know, dev tools, AI. She's like, no, we, we don't do dev tools. They're too complex. I was like, so you're not doing AI machine learning. This. Oh no, we love machine learning, which by the way, if, if <laughs> you're a software is, uh, engineer listening to this, complex. I, it's that, that was like the most single offensive thing I think I've ever heard of somebody who's had to code <laughs> his own neural network at some point in time in his life was a different life, but either way, you know, NumPy neural network made me completely discount how complex that is relative to some dev tools. But they're both complex. Either way, uh, I, I find a lot of people invest in things that they don't understand, and that's that's the definition of following a hype wave. And I, I, I think that's a lot of what we see in crypto, a lot of what we see in, in a bunch of industries right now, and it's why 
honestly, I like we're probably going to see a lack of availability for capital for emerging fund managers in two to three years because people are going to get screwed at some point in time. All right, we actually have one more question to record too. George, what is one public company or, or I guess even private company that you think is going to fail or that you would like to see fail? Oh, the University of Phoenix. All right. Walk me through it. I, I mean, makes sense, but w- walk me through it. Why do you want to see the University of Phoenix fail? Okay, so, you know, there's this notion that education is a, a public good that everybody should have access to. And, of course, there's, like, varying degree, degrees of, of quality or whatever. And, you know, you see a certain degree of, you know, administrative sprawl and mismanagement and overcharging across the board in in public education or and private education. But... Once you get into the for-profit education game, I think that's where you start to become somewhat morally indefensible. So, for example, the University of Phoenix was sued, successfully sued, for um, providing misleading ads to prospective students about the value and quality of their education. And there's also something that feels like a little odd about an educational institute that is ostensibly, you know, for education that is also owned by private equity to some extent. So I think there's just like a wild misalignment of incentives in that business. And like, sure, maybe they're going to make money. Do I think that business should exist? Like, no, because it's duping people into buying what is a, what should be a public good under false pretenses and like a, a, a kind of misguided understanding of, of the product they're receiving. All right. So that, so that's a very moral answer to the question. It, if we gave a, a less moral answer, <laughs> what, what's, what's the company? Oh, FTX. All right. Fair enough. George, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure having you. I appreciate you taking the flight out, and we'll look forward to seeing you at happy hour after this. And until next time. Yeah, I know. Hopefully, I still have a job after this one. So, And, and so with that being said, um, George, thank you, thank you for coming on. If you want to reach George, we're going to put his contact details in the show notes. It's just george at outsidersfund.com. Yeah, I'm a pretty good guy. Reach out. Sh- shameless self-plug. I mean, <laughs> so so we're, the other thing we've been dealing with today, it is very hot in our damn venture recording studio. It's currently 75 degrees for no particular reason. And No, yeah, no. I mean, legacy HVAC systems are absolute trash. Yeah, um, HVAC's pretty terrible. I, I wouldn't happen to know anything solving that, actually. Uh, it's weird because we're actually incubating a company that's looking to solve the HVAC interoperability problem in class B and C industrial and commercial buildings. So if any of y'all have a shitty HVAC system and would like a pilot, you know where to find me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you, George. Appreciate it. Take care, all.